Matthew chapter 18, verse number 1. About that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Can we pray and ask God to help us this morning with his word? Jesus, we worship you. We thank you. Thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence. Pray, Father, your anointing, blessing, your favor upon this message, upon this word today. Let your will be done in this service. Have your way, Father. We need you. We desire you. We long for you, God. And we pray, God, that you'd speak to our hearts today in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated this morning. Kingdom life. Often we see in the New Testament teachings of Jesus in reference to something called the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, this this domain where God is king and in charge. The word kingdom literally means the king's domain, where the king has control, where the king has authority, where his law is obeyed, where his commands are given and and received and carried out. And Jesus came to preach that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, was near, had not yet come, but it was there. It was present. And uh, in one portion of scripture later on, the, the, the writers of the New Testament, the, the letters to the church, they would say things like, there's righteousness peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Mm -hmm. There's righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, echoing a lot of what Jesus had to say about the kingdom. That the kingdom would bring righteousness. In the kingdom of God there would be joy and in God's kingdom you can have peace. A lot of these phrases and things Jesus would use to talk about his kingdom that was about to come, that was about to be established. And he was constantly talking about this, this kingdom, this, this domain of, of a king that was going to come on the earth. And, and I mean, his disciples could hardly help it. I'm sure we would probably find ourselves in the same situation. But, but they, they literally thought Jesus meant that there would be a real kingdom. Like a, like a real place, uh, perhaps a walled-in city or a country or a nation or a government that would be established that would carry out God's perfect will in the earth. And, uh, and so they, they really viewed the kingdom in a physical way, not, not spiritual. They, they literally saw it as a physical kingdom that was going to arrive in the earth, and Jesus obviously was going to be that king. Uh, what this what this teaches when Jesus is talking about the kingdom that is going to come, 
he's, he's almost alluding to the idea that there's a kingdom that's already here in place. And this new kingdom is going to come and, and displace the kingdom that is already present. Paul would write to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 4 and 4. He said, Satan, who is the god of this world, has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. Yes. Satan is the god, small g, of this world. That's a very important thing for you to know. That helps with the understanding of why there is so much corruption and suffering and, and malady and illness and, and sin and debauchery in this world because the, the world is not under the strict governance of God. Yes, sir. The, the world systems are not under God's strict governance. They don't follow his command. They follow rather the God of this world. And the God of this world who is Satan, the small g, not big G, he's the small G of this world, has blinded the minds of those who do not believe so that they are unable to see the light. They're literally unable to see the plain truth that maybe is so obvious to you and I this morning and, and uh, there's times where God has to even turn the light on for us. Even though, you know, we're saved and we come to church and we hopefully read the Bible and pray every day and, and, and try to follow God and do what's right, there's even times where God has to turn on the light in a room that we thought didn't really exist. But God, every once in a while you're reading the Bible and it's like God flips the light on your room and you're, oh, I didn't know that was there. Amen, amen. Oops. <laughs> but this is what God does. He turns the light on. Because Satan wants nothing more than to blind and keep us in the dark. He does not want you to know the plan of God for your life. He doesn't want you to be part of God's kingdom. He doesn't want you to be free from addiction, sickness, depression, fear, doubt, anxiety, lust, selfishness, hatred, pride. Satan wants to keep you ensnared and entangled in the web of all of these various things. But the kingdom of God is about breaking the power of Satan and his vices and restoring your relationship with God. First, Second Corinthians 5.15 says that he died, Jesus died, so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. Amen. That's why Jesus died. He died to reconcile the world to himself. He, he died so that, that the world that was separated from him could be returned to him. And so the disciples had to reconcile this idea in their mind. They had a hard time figuring out or understanding what the kingdom of God was all about. I mean, being Jewish, they could hardly, they could hardly think of it any other way. For them, when they thought of a kingdom, they thought of King David. King David was the golden age of Israel. King David was the, the age when giants were defeated. And, and David's defeat of Goliath led to the defeat of Goliath's brothers. Because although we read of David killing Goliath with the sling and a stone and, and, and not much more than a prayer, we, we read a little bit later how David's brethren, his, his uh, men in arms, went and found out Goliath's five brothers and took care of them as well. David's 
David inspired the nation to victory. He inspired the nation to conquest and to establishing the kingdom of Israel. And Solomon lived out the golden age of David's reign. So they, they really thought of, of kings like David, Solomon, Josiah, who later returned the kingdom to a form of its previous glory in his, in his reign, in his rule of the nation of Judah. Kings David and Solomon were considered that, that golden age. So when Jews thought of the kingdom of God, they thought the return of King David, the return of David's uh, conquest, the return of, uh, of David's victories. And, 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 and the better part of this is that the, the prophet said that the Messiah would bring about a kingdom whose expansion would have no end. Yes. So, so Israel was going to become a larger nation than it was because Israel would soon encroach on the territories of Egypt and, and, and the north and the, the west and the east. And Israel would just continue to spread because the increase of his government and reign would know no limits and no boundaries. So you can, you can get the kind of tickle in their tummy when they saw and recognized who Jesus was. Why would Peter leave his fishing nets to follow a teacher, a rabbi? Why would Matthew leave his tax collector's booth with all of its wealth and all of its promise of, of success in the Gentile world? Why would he leave that to follow a rabbi who was not well known? Why? Because there was something greater on the horizon for them. And you can only guess how they felt when they when they come to the realization that Jesus was the Messiah and they were convinced that he was going to set up their kingdom to, to them. Jesus would later tell his disciples in John 16, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And that must have been just like, oh, cool. There's more? You told us so much already. This is at the end of, of Jesus' ministry. He'd already been with them three three and a half years and, and he's telling them this is this is not the end there's more to discover and they're going wow so cool Jesus certainly had to lead his disciples step by step because they they did not really see how this was a spiritual kingdom mm. you know Jesus would teach them how to pray and he would say pray Thy kingdom come, God. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This must have been so exciting for them to hear this teaching and hear all these promises of God's kingdom coming. So it's natural. It's natural for them to look at themselves and, and, and then look at Jesus and say, Well, all right, Jesus, which one of us is going to be greatest in your kingdom? Which which one of us here is going to, like, we kind of want to know, how, how, is the, how is the pecking order going to go? This is classic boys' behavior. You get some boys in a park together, and it won't be long until you see them. They're, they're racing. They're climbing. They're, they're doing crazy stunts. Why do boys do that? They're trying to figure out who is on top. Who's the alpha? Who's the best? Who's the leader of the pack? And then Renee comes in and bosses them around and tells them all where to go and how to get there. So she she, she disrupts the alpha pack there a little bit. It's funny, really. I, we were at the park yesterday and there was 
you know, my boys and whatever other boys there were doing their thing, and then Renee comes along, okay, it's the rhinoceros party now, you follow me, and she's <laughs> carrying everybody up the slide, and her, she's funny. But this is the thing, boys, when they get together, there's this tussling match, there's this, I mean, even, it even happens with men, we're a lot more discreet about it now, we, but, you know, we start talking about our boats, and our, our cars, or computers, or whatever, whatever our thing is that we can flex, you know, uh, and we try to find that pecking order of who is on top, who's the alpha male, who's the one that kind of gets to call the shots here, and so the disciples are doing this, they're they're with each other day in and day out. They finally get to the point where they say, look, we can't figure this out amongst ourselves. We don't know which one of us can catch the most fish or can count the most money or can wrestle the most arms. So Jesus, you're the top dog. Why don't you tell us which one of us is going to be the greatest in your kingdom so we can like, fall in line, right? We can, we can start acting like it's going to be when your kingdom is established. And this was... This was something that probably rubbed the nerve of Jesus raw. This constant pecking order discovery thing. The ambition to achieve greatness is a pursuit that is centered on human accomplishment and success. Which it can quickly and, and so easily lead to pride. Yes, sir. And come from that sense that I am self-made, I, I, I did this, mm -hmm. yep. I'm on top. Luke records this instance with a little bit more detail. He said, Jesus said, let these words sink in your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Luke 9 and 44, so fascinating. Jesus is saying to the disciples, listen up and let this sink in. This is a very important piece of information. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So they began to argue among themselves as to which one of them was the greatest. Did you catch that? Jesus says, hey guys, I'm about to be delivered into the hands of men. I'm in other words, I'm about to be taken captive. I'm about to be killed. I'm about to be crucified. And they didn't understand it. It didn't make sense. It was like his words were foreign to them. The meaning of it was concealed. And so instead of proceeding with understanding, they moved on to what they could, they could get wrapped their heads around. And that was, which one of us is better than the other? It, it, they had consumed the common notion of the Jews that, that, that Jesus was the prince and the conqueror and the deliverer of a nation and, and they could not understand how he would be delivered into the hands of his enemies. That, that did not make sense. It did not mesh with their worldview. This is the problem. We've got to come to the word of God and remove the worldview glasses we came into. We've got to, we, we need to learn how to be conscious of our own upbringing, of our own worldview, our own perspectives, and, and our own preconceived ideas. So when we come into the, the kingdom of God, and there is a clash of kingdoms, that we, we yield that kingdom we came into to the kingdom of God. 
You may come in with a certain way your culture operates and functions and, 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 and acts and, and treats one another. But if that clashes with the kingdom of God, then, then, then your kingdom has got to come down and bow the knee to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember hearing missionaries to Asia come back from China and different places and and uh, the missionaries would say things like, when we went across the sea, people in, in, in North America told us the Asians will never worship Jesus the way we do here. They're reserved, they're quiet, they're, they're, they're you know, they just, they, they keep everything very solemn and respectful. And, and the missionaries would take that. There was brother and sister Willoughby, missionaries to Singapore. They went, up, they went over to Singapore and they began to teach that with that in mind and they begin to teach the people in Asia and say this is now the Jesus culture this is the kingdom of God and you've got to lay down your upbringing you've got to lay down what you think is respectful and proper and you've got to worship God the way his word tells you how to worship and wouldn't you know after a few years they began to do that very thing and they'd come back to North America with their videos and people would be shocked and astonished that, that, that those in Asia, in Singapore, and, and, and different places were worshiping God with freedom and, and boisterously and loudly and, and excitement. Why? Because they had laid down their own conceptions and preconceived ideas and their kingdoms laid down so that the kingdom of God could be established. In this way, the disciples had not yet come to that place where they laid down their kingdom. Because Jesus said something that clashed with them. How could you be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles? It's the Gentiles you're to be defeating. How is that possible? And instead of letting that kingdom fall, they began to build it stronger. They began to reinforce it. Well, which one of us is greater? Which one of us is better? So we've got to go over to God all the time. We've got to come back. This is why repentance is a gift. Repentance is not a dirty word. The society at large would like to tell you that you don't, you don't have anything you need to repent for. You don't have anything you need to change about you because you are you and everybody should just accept you for who you are. And that's just the way you are. That's who you love. That's what you love. And what you love is important. And, and I mean, follow your heart, man. Follow your heart. It's like plastered all over graduation gift cards and, uh, and advice. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. When you read the Bible, the Bible says, don't follow your heart. It's deceitful. Your heart can be broken. And a broken heart does not give good advice. Your heart can be deceived. And a deceived heart cannot give good advice. Your heart can be confused and disillusioned, and a confused and disillusioned heart cannot give advice. Amen. Your heart can be corrupted, and a corrupted heart cannot give good advice. Your heart can be filled with hatred, and a hateful heart cannot give good advice. Then who am I to follow? You are to follow God. Follow His Word. His Word is forever settled. God's Word will never be broken. His Word will never be disillusioned. His Word will never be confused. His Word will never change with the tide or change with the society at large. His Word is forever settled. And so when your heart comes into the picture, it must bow the knee to the kingdom of God. Amen. we got to come to God and repent. 
The word repent just means to turn away, turn around, change your mind. It's not, it's not as big as it sounds. It's not as, you know, unfortunately with repentance comes things like guilt. And often with guilt comes with something that's called shame. That shame is what actually is the anchor that holds you down and prevents you from moving forward in your walk with God. When you just realize, you know, it's about as, it's about as, as drastic or dramatic as making a wrong turn. Anybody ever made a wrong turn? Did it destroy your life? Did it really ruin your day? I mean, you might feel that at the time. Oh, I made the wrong turn. This is going to totally ruin my day. You might even think that, right? If you're really discombobulated or having a rough morning or whatever, and you make the wrong turn and it makes you a little bit late, and oh man, this this is going to ruin my day. But in reality, if you look back, was your day really ruined? No, sir. Uh, just a little hiccup. Just a bump. It might have delayed something. It might have changed your day. Mm-hmm. It might have changed your, but ruined your day? Eh, no. So it is with our sin. When we sin, it's like making a wrong turn. God says, it's okay. Let's just get back. Get get out of your God's positioning oh, system. Yeah. Get out your Bible, your GPS, Amen. your God's positioning system, and get back on the right turn. Amen. And in order for you to get on the right road, you've got to turn away from the road that's leading you away from God and turn back. That's what repentance is. It's just changing your mind. It's saying, hey, the actions that I chose to do, the way that I was choosing to think, the way that I was even brought up to believe or think or or the ideas that I accepted to be right and good, they're not so great. They're not so, there's a better way. That is repenting. Praise God. That's simple. That's easy. That's actually healthy. Mm. You probably repent on a daily basis without even realizing you're repenting because you go, oh man, you know what? I really, I don't need to be doing this right now. I'm going to do something else. Mm. What you just do? You just repented. You changed your mind. You changed the way you were thinking to think something else and some way else. That's why God over and over in his word says to enter the kingdom, you've got to be born again. It's not enough for you to be born once. You actually have to have a rebirth. You actually have to have a new birth where you repent, you turn away from the way you were born, and you go down in the waters of baptism in Jesus' name. What does that symbolize? It symbolizes a death. The death of the old man, the death of the old life, and the burial of that old man. When you bury something, you don't ever dig it back up to find out if it's okay. You leave it buried. Amen. If so, I'm not going to to dig up my father's grave to 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 try to collect the suit and have it dry cleaned to have someone else use it. No, it's buried. Amen. It's buried. Whatever went under the ground with it is going to stay there until Jesus blows the trumpet. Maybe he'll come out the ground in that suit. I don't know. But but he's buried, and so he's not going to know. When you go down in the water, your sins are buried. Your way is buried. Your lifestyle is supposed to stay in the ground. Yes, sir. Don't go grave digging for the old life. And so you bury it, but then you come out out of the water and you rise to walk in a new life. Now you're born again of the water and of the Spirit. Because we didn't hold you under the water. 
Thankfully, I promise, pastor will not hold you under the water. It doesn't matter how sinful you are. One quick dip's enough. Just whoop, whoop, right out. We won't hold you under. We want you to come out. Amen. Because when you come out, your sins are left behind. Hallelujah. But you come out of the water liberated from that life, liberated from that way, liberated from those thoughts, liberated from that shame, liberated from that guilt. And you come up out of the water and are able to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that breathes into you new life and new breath. The old man must die, not simply be changed. The old man cannot simply just be changed. He must be replaced. There's a scripture in Luke chapter 5, verse 37, where Jesus taught a parable and he says, you can't take new wine and put it into old wineskins. I've learned uh, kind of the idea of this by making my own kombucha. Come talk to me about it after. I won't tell you, try to explain it. You go to the store, you can buy kombucha. And it's, an, it's a probiotic living fermented black tea. And, and if you make it at home, you've got to buy the right kind of bottles to put it in because it's it ferments. It doesn't get alcoholic. It's one of those fermentations that doesn't go that far. But it ferments enough to become probiotic and fizzy and delicious and self-carbonated and it's really good. But if you put it in a bottle that's not made for that kind of thing, the, the, the pressure inside the bottle as it ferments and carbonates itself, it expands because it puts pressure and so if you don't have the right kind of bottle, your bottle can actually explode in your cabinet, making your wife very angry with you. So I make sure to get the right kind of bottle. So you don't want a messy kitchen. Very important. And Jesus has said, you cannot put new wine in old wineskins. Because in the days of Jesus, in order to ferment their beverages, they would use wineskins. Wineskins were the uh, dehydrated stomachs of sheep. They would collect the stomach and process it in a way that became sanitary. And, and it was leather. It became a leather thing. And it was naturally a, 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 in the shape of like a drinking vessel. It held liquid. That's what it was designed for. And they found ways to cap off the ends of the, the stomach that became like a leather pouch. And it was soft and pliable. The new wine skin was soft and pliable. So when the, the wine would go into the wine skin to ferment, and they would hang it on their walls in their homes, and it would ferment there in the house. Well, the, the wine skin would, would expand, but not burst. But after it went through a first fermentation and became drinkable, you could not use that old wine skin for new wine. You could put old wine in the wineskin because it was done fermenting. But you couldn't put new wine in the old wineskin because it had already been stretched to its maximum. And if you put new wine in the old wineskin, it would burst. It would break open because the fermenting would put more pressure and it would expand more and it would break. So Jesus was saying that the kingdom I'm bringing is new. And it can't fit into old ways. It cannot fit into old frameworks. The, the temple doesn't work anymore in the kingdom. Bringing animal sacrifices doesn't work in the kingdom anymore. Having a, a delegated priest's authority where only the priest could enter the presence of God isn't going to work in my new kingdom. It's an old structure that cannot hold what my kingdom is going to bring about. And so you cannot use old wineskins 
uh, with new wine, you've got to replace it. It's the same way with your life. You cannot patch an old garment with a new garment. You've had to have a new garment. And if you ever try to put a patch on your pants that rip, guess what's going to happen? It's going to rip around the patch. Mm. The patch is going to stay strong, but the cloth around the patch is weak. So when you, when, you, when you patch it, it just makes a rip somewhere else a little bit down the road. You cannot patch up your life. You cannot just make do and make changes and visit your therapist, which I think is a good thing to do. That's not all. You've got to actually change your life. You've actually got to replace the old with new habits. The undesired behavior, the habit, or the vice cannot simply be stopped. It must be replaced. It must be replaced. The problem with the disciples is that they were looking to Jesus the way they'd always looked at the Messiah. The conquering prince or king, the victorious deliverer, the king of kings. And, and that's what he was, but they did not see him in the light of what he really was. That's why John said he was in the world. The world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came to his own and his own received him not. They could not see him for who he really was. So Jesus said to them, in response to their, their posturing of one another, in response to their, which one of us is the greatest? Jesus answered the question like this. He called a little child to him and he sent him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except you become converted, except you become different than what you are, and become as little children, ye shall never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They said to him, who's the greatest? And Jesus answered and said, you can't even get in unless you become a child. Right. Unless you become like a child, you cannot even enter the kingdom of heaven. They wanted to know which one of us was best, which one of us is biggest, which one of us is smartest, which one of us is the most honored. And Jesus wanted to know, wanted them to know that no one with that attitude is even going to enter the door of the kingdom of God. You must be converted. You must apply a new way of living to your life, something that's completely different. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away, and all things are become new. If we're going to live for God the way he wants us to live here, we've got to be made completely new. We make a lot of to-do about receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost because it's, it's essential for salvation. It's a gift from God. Yeah. There's so many great things about receiving the Holy Ghost, but, but in Pentecost, we can become so fixated on how many received the Holy Ghost at this conference, how many people received the Holy Ghost in your church this week, that we forget that it's only the entry position. It's only the, the beginning. It's the shot that fires the beginning of the race. It's not the whole race. It's just the beginning of the race. And, and, and uh, having this humility that comes from being like a child is what Jesus is desiring from us today. A child is vulnerable. In the ancient world, children were valued primarily for their benefit that they brought to the family. 
by enhancing the workforce and adding to the defensive power and guaranteeing the future glory of the house. But they had no rights or significance apart from their future value to the family. They were only as valuable as what they might potentially become. If a child became lame in the leg or blind in the eye or deaf, their value became way less. Because now their potential to benefit the family as a whole had significantly been reduced. The humility of a child consists of their inability to advance themselves or their cause apart from the help and resources of a parent. Isn't it amazing how dependent a child is for their, on their parents? And if their parents do not provide for that child, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, that child will be severely hampered in their life and their future. Yet Jesus did not look on this, this dependence as something of, uh, of a negative, but rather as a positive illustration of how we are to be dependent upon God. The child can really do nothing for him or herself. And if left alone for an inordinate amount of time, that child will eventually die. Yes, sir. They will not survive. They will not, they will not become everything they are meant to be. Even if they can find food and sustain themselves emotionally, that dependence they have, that need they have from the parent, for the even just the touch of the parent. They can, they can have all of the, the physical needs met, but if even that physical touch, that love, that affirmation that is such a need for a child is not there, the child will be severely affected by that in their upbringing. They really are dependent solely on the parent for everything. Why would Jesus use this illustration? It was, it was the opposite. The disciples are, which one of us is the most independent? Which one of us is the most self-producing? Self which one of us is the strongest? Which one of us is the most effective? And Jesus said, no, it's really which one of you is the most dependent on God mm. is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Mm. Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst. A little child that Jesus called came without delay. When Jesus called that child, he came right away. He did not hesitate. He did not stop and think, is this really what I really want? I, I, what will I have to give up to come to Jesus? No, the child just came immediately. As soon as Jesus asked and beckoned to him, that child came. How quick are we to come when Jesus calls? How quick are we to obey the word when we see it call us to service, to discipline, to, to, to turning away from a, a way of life or a habit or a desire that we may have in our heart. How, how quick are we to lay that aside and follow Jesus? The little child did not know why Jesus wanted him. Perhaps never really comprehended the concept that Jesus was teaching, but he came anyway. Are you willing to ask, do what Jesus asked, even if you don't fully understand everything that he's asking of you? Can you learn to trust Jesus and trust his word, even if it grates against your culture, your upbringing, or the values of this world that you hold so dearly to your heart? If you read something in the Bible and it clashes with you, can you trust that God's word is greater than the kingdom you have been brought up in or have chosen to live a part of?
The child was trusting and confident that Jesus would not ask him to do anything that would harm him. What is the common excuse we give when we are asked of God to do something either by his word, by his spirit, or by spiritual authority in our lives? No, Lord, I, it, that's too embarrassing. No, Lord, I'm, I'm afraid of what I might lose. No, Lord, that's too uncomfortable. Yes. No, I don't think I'm able to do this or to do that. But Jesus is saying the child is trusting and confident that if Jesus asked him to do something, then the child had all the resources in his disposal to do what Jesus was asking him to do. Unlike children, adults, unlike children, adults have too much life experience. We have too much life experience. We base wisdom far too often on our years of experience. Look at a business, 25 years of experience. And if you have two business owners, it's 50 years of combined experience. It's yeah. Marketing, yeah, yeah. It helps. It helps make the sale, right? It helps build credibility in our minds because, well, if you've been doing it for this many years, then you've probably seen everything and figured out everything. And if you face a problem, you know how to solve it. We 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 pride ourselves on lots of experience. Adults pride themselves on accomplishment, how much education they have, how much money, how much success, what we've achieved, and those things have their place and their merit. But Jesus said, when you come into my kingdom, you really got to lay all of that aside and come to me like a child. You got to lay aside your PhDs and your degrees and your, your classes and your, your apprenticeships and your years of experience because when you're standing next to the God who fashioned everything with the spoken word, there's no amount of your education or your experience that's going to amount to his understanding. Forget what you experienced so that you can feel. Forget what you heard so you can listen. Forget what you've seen so that you can see. Forget what you know so you can learn. Mm. Children are impressionable. They pick up on things. Parents often come face to face with their own idiosyncrasies and oddities in the face of their children. Right? You ever, has any parent in the room ever experienced your child say something and go, that sounds a lot like my dad. <laughs> oh, that sounded like my mom. Oh, that sounded like, right? And you don't, you don't realize what you're actually saying is, that sounded a lot like me. Yeah. You see yourself in the face of your children and you go, well, where did they learn that? How did they learn that? They're impressionable. They soak it up. Jesus wants us to soak up and be impressionable in his presence. Children don't have heirs of society placement unless it's taught to them. Right. The rich and the poor child can play alongside one another and get along without realizing that there is a class difference between Amen. the two. Right. Children of different ethnicities, different cultures, different backgrounds, and come together and learn how to interact and play together without much division or, or, or tearing apart of those scenes because there, there, there's just no preconceived separation of who's different right. and why that matters. Amen. So discard your old way of thinking. Let God speak to you again. Hallelujah. Jesus, 
uh, James chapter 4 tells us to submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Be afflicted and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Verse 10 says, humble yourself in the sight of God and he shall lift you up. Humble yourself. 1 Peter 5 tells us to be clothed with humility. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you in due time. Humbling yourself does not mean self-depreciating. doesn't mean talking about yourself in a negative way. That's not humility. That's false humility. Humility is saying, I might not know it all. I know, I know some things, and, but I'm willing to learn more. I'm open to receiving more counsel. I, I don't know it all. I, I, I might be an expert from my perspective in this field, but, but there's probably someone who knows more than me in this area. I'm open to learning. I'm open to receiving. It's being reachable and teachable. Jesus said, anyone who welcomes a little child on this behalf is welcoming me. Jesus wants us to come to him like a little child. Humble, open, ready to receive, ready to hear. Ready to let him correct and change and adjust, transform our lives. Can we stand this morning? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Can we just lift our voice and our hands to the Lord and talk to him? Jesus, we love you. We praise you, Jesus. We need you, Lord Jesus. Help us to draw closer to you. Help us to, to lean on you, Lord Jesus, for understanding. I wonder if you'd make a place of prayer this morning at the front here. Come and talk to the Lord. Humble yourself before God. Help me to be like a little child, Lord Jesus. Help me to be responsive when you call. Help me to be open to your voice, open to your spirit. Hallelujah, Jesus. Oh, draw me close to Before you, Jesus, to hear you say that I'm. 